Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we're empowering mental and emotional health for Asian Americans and beyond by breaking through taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. I am sitting here during Labor Day weekend in San Diego, and it is so hot. So a lot of the places here don't have AC because usually there's no reason to, and it has been sweltering. But thankfully, I just took my daughter to Tahoe. We did a long road trip, and it was an opportunity for me to play summer camp because my daughter starts school later than most, so there weren't actually any other summer camps available. And it was a really good opportunity for me to be around one of my very good friends and have her kind of witness the way that I parent. So inwardly, I'd already thought that, you know, perhaps sometimes I'm still too much of a tiger parent. I find it a little bit challenging when it comes to being able to draw from a well of compassion or empathy, because even though that's my innate nature, it's not how I was raised. So it's not necessarily kind of what was filled up. You know, sometimes they'll talk about in relationships, how you fill the love bank account, you're constantly making deposits so that sometimes when there's a withdrawal that happens and a conflict, there's a lot in the bank and a lot you know, that you've shored up to be able to handle and weather that. So for me, parenting has been a bit of a challenge in that regard of me wanting to be the conscious parent and to not create more intergenerational trauma for me to parent my daughter in the way that is suitable for her, for her intellect, her nature, her physicality, all of these things. And then also, you know, there's a book called Heart to Heart Parenting that our uh, midwife or one of our kind of birthing coaches had given to us. And it's about how at a certain point when your child reaches a certain age, if you experience trauma at that point, it's going to force you to reckon with it because it will bring up things in the past and whatnot. And I'm realizing now that my daughter is seven so this was when my, you know, first younger brother was born. In a couple of years, she'll be nine. And that's when my other brother was born. And during those times, I just remember how definitively life began to shift. The financial problems were in full, you know, kind of NASCAR level speed in my family of origin. The um, responsibilities that I was given to help raise my younger siblings, the uh, just me growing up, you know, having to grow up quickly. In a previous episode with Roran, I talked about the parentified child idea and how detrimental that can be when you're forced to grow up earlier than, you know, is natural. And then you're forced to take on responsibilities. So my friend Deb said to me like, yeah, you know, in a few moments, there are opportunities for you to probably ease up. So it was great feedback to get. We talked about our different parenting styles. You know, she knows a lot about my family of origin. And then it gave me an opportunity also to realize this parenting thing, this life thing is going to be a continual journey. It will ideally be one of where we're continually 
up-leveling ourselves. We're moving in that upward moving spiral that I've spoken about before, where you may come across similar experiences, but your level of awareness has increased. So your engagement with the experience is going to be different and it will continue to unfold until there's an opportunity to heal. So I'm seeing moments for me to heal myself and I'm having these conversations with my daughter in a way where I endeavor to make sure that it's not too adult and she doesn't have to hold on to too many responsibilities, but it does create a different dynamic than the one that I had with my own parents. There's an Instagram account I follow called Big Life Journal, and it talks about all these really quick tips uh, that you can utilize in your parenting. So for example, to contribute to that bank account that I had referenced earlier, for every negative instance that happens, counteract it with three positive things. So three positive sayings, three positive compliments, things like that. There's another account I follow called The Holistic Psychologist. And I just came across this post that my friend Sarah, who's a child therapist, posted the other day. And it says, this is what it looks like to grow up in a safe, secure home. When adults hurt you or lost control of their emotions, they took responsibility and apologized. This is how we learn accountability and repair in relationships. You weren't parentified or made to do adult things as a child. Your parents were aware of your emotional limits. Parentification looks like telling a child about marital issues, having a child be a caretaker to a sibling, using a child as a pawn or to control a partner. All things that I experienced growing up and perhaps you did too. Adults asked you about how you felt, what you thought, and they validated your emotional experiences regularly, which did not happen in my household. Healthy communication was taught and emotional manipulation wasn't used. You were safe to say what you felt. Emotional manipulation looks like giving silent treatment, rage cycles, guilting, shaming, blaming, making children responsible for adult emotions or issues. When you told an adult that something happened, they believed you and did not gaslight you or deny your reality. This is how we learn to trust ourselves. Everyone was free to feel different emotions. The emotional climate of the home wasn't controlled by a single person, common in homes with narcissistic parents. Your individual development was encouraged and nurtured. Independence was valued. You weren't pressured or forced to conform to group think. Adults were present with you, engaged in play, and nurtured your emotional world regularly. You were told when crossed a boundary without damaging your connection with abusive discipline. You did not fear the wrath of a parent. So these are all things that I've endeavored to do differently with my own child. And, you know, after our Tahoe trip, my daughter was sitting on my bed as I was getting ready for the evening and to read stories to her. And she made this comment that she appreciated that I was not a loosey goosey parent. To which I asked, you know, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, she explained the story and she explained why. And it helped me to kind of be a bit more compassionate with myself that um, she's feeling like she has healthy, safe boundaries with me. All of that is remarkable. And, you know, I always check in with her, making sure that she doesn't feel this burden of responsibility because I want her to enjoy being a kid. All of these are things that children of immigrants may or may not deal with, depending on how healthy or how, you know, well-adjusted your family of origin was. And so today's guest, Jessica, she created Lingo Health. So Jessica Chow, she actually just recently sent an email to share some exciting news that they're launching a trial of their care guide service for older adults and family caregivers looking for early users. 
So I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Jessica Chow, and she's the CEO and co-founder at Lingo Health. When I first came across her website, which I encourage you to visit, it was remarkable just how immediately she grasped who her target market is, and I felt the sense of being seen instantly. The way that the website is designed where, you know, it's asking, are you the one responsible for translating these certain things or have you been that person? I felt very seen in that regard. So Lingo Health is a platform to help older adults and family caregivers better navigate their care needs. She's very interested in the need for language inclusivity and to address language and cultural barriers because she's a daughter of immigrants. She's a former impact investor and she's a digital health founder trying to bring a product to promote health equity and to really give these communities of color, especially ones that experience language barriers, how to access the right health care, how to get the services that they need, how to be able to, you know, the person who's doing all the translating to speak to the person who needs to hear the message, to be able to translate those needs to the healthcare providers. So I just got an email from her that they are now launching a trial of their care guide service for older adults and family caregivers, and they're looking for early users. If that's something that you're interested in, please visit app.lingohealth.io to learn more and get matched with a care guide to answer any of your questions. So her team can help you or your loved ones with common questions related to finding a new doctor, navigating insurance benefits, resources for new retirees and older adults. And what I loved about her is just her deep, heartfelt want to create a different way for what the world needs now. So if you are a child of immigrants, if you have parents and people in your life who, you know, are aging and need this support, I highly encourage you to listen to this episode. Um, she's a graduate from Stanford University, and she talks about her personal and professional journey in that regard. Enjoy the episode. Well, I'm very excited for today's guest. I have Jessica Chow here. She's the co-founder and CEO of Lingo Health. And I have to say that the first time that I went to her website, I just fell in love with the way that the user interface was, um, all of the language that was on the site, it very much resonated with me. If you are like me, who is um, a first generation, like I was born here, my parents were not. And then the amount of translating that I had to do for them and for my grandmother, like signing checks for my grandmother when I was in elementary school, all of these things that you were able to encapsulate so well on the homepage of your site. And then I actually shared it with my team. And, you know, a lot of them are also Asian American and they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm like, I know. <laughs> so I would love to turn it over to Jessica for you to just share a little bit about your story and what Lingo Health is all about. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for having me on, Judy. Um, so Lingo Health really came about sort of at the intersection of my personal and professional interests. So for me, also daughter of immigrants, um, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the 1980s from Taiwan They've lived and worked in the U.S. I was born and raised in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. So mm. very much um, sort of, you know, had both the Asian heritage, but also grew up in the U.S. And just watching my parents as they navigated through, you know, things as simple as asking a customer service representative for something um, or something more challenging, like navigating through healthcare has always been something that has struck me as honestly deeply unfair, mm -hmm. um, unfair that it's so challenging and 
um, you know, I think about this a lot of like, you know, if I'm not in the room with my, you know, relatively accentless English, how will my parents be perceived and how will they get taken care of? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's more of the personal element. Uh, on the professional side, I started my career working in uh, sort of the intersection between healthcare and business, working in healthcare investment banking and healthcare investing. And it was always really interesting to me to think about all this capital being spent in healthcare and actually not much solving the problems that I was seeing from my family within healthcare Um, questions and making sure that answer and understood and you know just having something that was trust trusted within our community Um, so that's really where lingo health started is like how can we help this experience be better for immigrant families helping folks like myself um, have better visibility, helping our loved ones as they get older, have less anxiety around navigating through the aging process in the U.S. And so that's the quick summary of myself and Lingo Health. That's amazing. So, um, you know, one of the guests that I had in season one, she was she is a breast cancer survivor. And so one of the things that she brought up was that inequity in care and how, you know, she really had to advocate for herself. And she was like, wait a minute, I'm not seeing in the studies that you're showing me anybody who looks like me, you know, and then am I receiving the same kind of care that somebody else would receive or, um, you know, and I feel like also because as an Asian American, I was taught to fall in line and to not like raise a ruckus and to not raise my hand and just, you know, call attention. And so if that is culturally what you're taught, then to sit there with a professional in a medical space or whatever, a position of authority and to challenge them to advocate for your care is so scary. And then to not have the languaging around that is even more so. So can you tell me more about what Lingo Health does and like how, you know, it's ideally helping to shift this um, paradigm that, you know, so many of us have experienced? Yeah, yeah. So maybe before I answer that, just like a quick point on the advocacy piece. I think that's something that's really huge in what we've seen in our research on this and this idea that in the U.S., you know, advocacy on the part of the patient is really important. And oftentimes the advocates for, you know, patients is their families, because sometimes going through the just emotional stress of getting a new diagnosis, navigating through just taking care of your health is a lot. And so it's helpful to have folks in your corner. Mm -hmm. And that's really how we think about Lingo Health is we think about how do we have, you know, the multi-generational element in many of our cultures persistent in the healthcare experience. So looping in informal caregivers, Mm -hmm. folks like, you know, myself and, you know, your story around like just helping our loved ones has always been a part of our lived experience. So bringing that element in and making sure that like when people are going to the healthcare, going through the healthcare system, they feel prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, a lot of that comes down to coordination and making sure you know what to expect mm-hmm. and being able to like pause before you even enter a doctor's office and be like, hmm, what do I want to get out of this experience? Like, what are questions that I have for the doctor? And making sure then that like you have the resources at your fingertips to, you know, take the best care of yourself and your loved ones. And so for us, it's really bridging some of the silos that exist in the healthcare system where the U.S. healthcare system candidly isn't set up for multi-generational families. Like I always, um, when I talk about this, draw parallels to the movie, The Farewell. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when folks who maybe are unfamiliar with 
a more sort of Asian manner of navigating through health and aging, watch that movie. It's, oh my God, that's so crazy. Like, how could they? Literally, that's happened to both sets of my grandparents. And so this idea of family being involved, but you know, wanting to make sure patients still feel empowered is this kind of dynamic that we're trying to navigate, this idea of like that very American notion of wanting patients to be in the driver's seat, but also embracing some of these other cultural elements, which is like having your family members involved and in the loop and being able to coordinate among themselves for all these different moving pieces is incredibly essential. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I think that the multi-generational, I had met a woman um, maybe a few months back who is really advocating for creating communities, uh, sustainable living communities that enable that multi-generational kind of existence because it's so valuable and it's so beautiful. And even just here living with my neighbors who you know have children who are uh, in high school and then have graduated, I just feel like even that has been such a boon because I get to see kind of the future of parenting. <laughs> like in front of me. And so, you know, and having the, um, that sense of purpose and that connection, um, and, you know, for sure, I've seen a lot of grandparents be very different with the grandchildren than with their own children. And so all of that kind of playing in together. Um, I'm very curious about how, you know, you built your company and just your experience as an Asian American woman in this entrepreneurial space, um, and the space of healthcare, how, what's it been like for you? Yeah, yeah. So for um for Lingo Health, like you know, we started this journey when we were graduate students. So my co-founder Yuritsa and I met as business school students at Stanford, um, both coming from a healthcare background, both with deeply personal stories of why we were passionate about out for communities that looked like us, folks who maybe had language or cultural barriers. And as we kind of embarked upon this journey, it was probably the most emotionally grueling mm. <laughs> professional experience that I've subjected myself to. And mm. hell, I've worked in investment banking, right? <laughs> and so I like, I, you know, think back to um, kind of when we first started and that sort of like bright eyed, <laughs> bushy tailed, like, you know, coming out of a school ecosystem where, you know, it's still relatively mm -hmm. supportive. Um, and then starting to talk to investors and mm -hmm. also being in a business school class where, you know, my business school class was one of the ones that was deeply affected by COVID. So mm -hmm. the running joke is because we were all stuck inside locked down. A lot of people started their own companies <laughs> being business school students. So like being like in an environment where you look around and like, ex-classmate has already raised yeah. whatever millions of dollars and kind of being that high achieving Asian American, I was like, wait, like <laughs> this is a real problem that I really want to solve. Like why, um, why is this not coming together? And I think for me thinking about like solving a problem that is also tied to my identity, this is the first time that's ever happened to me mm -hmm. in my professional experience. Usually it's job and identity. There's a little bit of a gap in between, not so much in this case, which made some of the initial conversations that did lead to, you know, passes or rejections, like a little bit trickier and a little bit harder yeah. to digest. And it was hard to hear people say that, like, I don't really think this is a big addressable market. And for me to be like, wait, this affects so many people that I know personally. And it's mm. a huge part of like the conversations I have with my own family about the next few decades as my parents get older. And like, to hear people say like, mm, I don't know if this adjustable market is, you know, something that's worth investing in was tough. It was undeniable. Who were those really people who were saying it to you? Were they, you know, of a certain gender or a certain 
you know, culture. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, the, the subtext is yes. Um, <sighs> these were coming from folks who didn't have this lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea that, you know, for them, those conversations that always irked me the most is when people kind of talked about folks who were not fluent in English as being either low education Mm. or low income, Mm. though that might be the case in certain pockets. I would argue in my experience, there's a diversity of income levels, a diversity of education levels. And, you know, fundamentally we're talking about healthcare here and everyone, in my opinion, deserves access to quality care, regardless of whether or not you speak, you know, English fluently in the U S. And so I think that for me was really hard to stomach is also just like navigating through these stereotypes. And so my co-founder and I really had to lean into the, like, no, 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 look at us, Mm. look at our pedigree Mm -hmm. and think about our experience. Like, Mm. you know, this is in our own communities and our own families. And so don't, you know, approach this with bias in mind. Like we had so many questions about like, you know, oh, is this only for like undocumented folks? And we were Mm -hmm. like, I mean, yes, there could be undocumented folks who are struggling with access to care due to language barriers. Absolutely. But that's not the entirety of this problem. And I had to remind people, like my parents have lived in the U.S. for 40 years. Yeah. It's just like, they don't feel comfortable speaking in English in intimate settings, but it's not that, you know, they're, (laughs) you know, in this sort of light that, you know, people had these preconceptions and necessarily fit a certain mold that, you know, certain folks who didn't have this lived experience might kind of think about. How long has Lingo Health been around? So we started kind of exploring this idea during the pandemic. Mm. Um, So in kind of mid 2020, and then we raised our pre-seed round in kind of the late summer of 2022. Idea being that we had just graduated from our business school program and we're excited to work on this full time and you know had a bunch of ideas on things we wanted to test, how we wanted to grow. Um, and so that's, you know, we were really fortunate in that ultimately we did meet investors who understood and who were willing to take a leap of faith that like we were passionate about this problem and this problem was worth solving mm-hmm. from both like an impact perspective, but also from a business perspective. And so that's kind of the genesis of Lingo Health. That's amazing. And where are you guys now? Like what, where, what's the status of Lingo Health now? Yeah. So, I mean, we're still very early stage. Like I like to think of ourselves as still very much a growing baby company. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're really excited. We brought on our CTO Mm -hmm. just this month. And so we're excited to get her up and running. Mm -hmm. We have um, an awesome set of advisors, folks who are practicing physicians, folks who have been executives at health plans, folks who have experience with direct-to-consumer health care and digital health. And so really excited about the team that we're kind of gathering around us. But you know, I would be lying if I pretended we were further along and like had no, so you know, exciting. a ton of traction. But I think for us it's we want to make sure that what we're building is explicitly designed for solving the problems that we're seeing within this community. Absolutely. And so some of the, if someone were to, you know, sign up and work with Lingo Health, what are some of the services that they could now and ideally in the future kind of expect to um, benefit from? Yeah, yeah. So you've caught us at a really interesting time where we just wrapped up our closed beta. So if you Mm -hmm. talked to me a month ago, I could tell you all about the beta program we were running and Mm -hmm. um, all the different ways we help with preventative care and navigating through insurance coverage and all the coordination elements that fall into that. 
I think right now what we're doing is we're taking the kind of learnings that we have from that closed beta and revamping the product. So we're kind of currently in the like work in progress um, mode right now, but we're really excited later this year, like around the summertime to be kind of launching a new version of the product, one that kind of takes into account everything that we've learned thus far. So stay tuned. (laughs) We like to keep our website relatively updated um, on things. And I think we have a few smaller initiatives. We're looking to um, think about, you know, things related to creating community, things related to like helping spark conversation within family units. So there are things that are kind of coming down the pipe, but, you know, for us really about putting together what we're learning, synthesizing that and building that into the tech product. That's amazing. And um, the audiences that you serve, are they any population where English is not the first language? Yeah, so we primarily started with the Latinx community as well as the Chinese speaking community. I think for us, one learning um, that we had is just depending on what community we're serving, um, you know, some of the nuances might be different. And so as we think about kind of heading closer to a product launch, we are planning to zero in on, you know, a given community. And my co-founder and I have talked about this a lot, like some of the differences and just Spanish as a language and, Mm -hmm. you know, Chinese and all the dialects that Mm -hmm. are included there. And I think for us, the thing that's interesting is just kind of the default in the U.S. is English. And sometimes there might be Spanish included, but usually in most circumstances, that's the extent of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think because of that, we're really interested about what does it mean to center like an Asian language, Mm -hmm. especially considering how different Asian languages are from English. And so that's something that we're still actively talking through. But I think for us, you know, thinking about the kind of uh, unmet need, it does seem based on our research much higher in the Asian American community, given this discrepancy in Asian languages. Hmm. And so given your experience thus far, your lived experience, your professional experience, what are some of kind of the key takeaways that you wish that people, there's this um, concept that uh, my team and I have been looking at called intellectual humility, where um, it is like challenging your biases and kind of like thinking through, you know, different things. And of course, like storytelling plays such a vital role in that where when you hear someone's story, it's hard to unhear it. You get to see it from a different lens and our brains are wired to understand stories and like draw that compassion and the empathy. So with what you've experienced, you know, what are some of the key takeaways that you'd love for a broader audience to understand, um, whether it's in this field or just even your just professional, your lived experience? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, it's this sort of challenging against English as a default. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's something that for folks who maybe don't have as many touch points to folks who don't have English as a first language, maybe is something they don't fully understand. I remember giving a talk about um, kind of language access and language access in healthcare in particular. And um, there was someone in the audience who was a DEI professional, someone who spent basically their their career thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, he made a comment at the end saying that, you know, in all his time working in this field, this was the first time he heard language inclusivity brought up at all. Wow. And it's really interesting to me because if I think about DEI, like language access just inherently was such a big part of how I think about it, just given my own family. And even as simple as just seeing the differences between when my mom service I call custom ending that's just sort of kind of 
thinking. So I think that's something just like fundamentally that I just wanted to share with folks who don't have this touch point. And I think the other thing is more general in terms of entrepreneurship is like making sure that we're able to get data points from a variety of different folks. It's because this is so personal, as you can tell, it's very easy to center my family or my co-founder's family or our CTO's family, like as the kind of um, archetype. But truthfully, I don't know if any of our families are the archetype. I don't really know if there is an archetype. Um, And so being open to the idea that every, especially for families, like my God, like our families are all different. Like there's going to be different dynamics I'm an only child. My <laughs> co-founders are eldest daughters of yeah. you know, multiple siblings. Like, what are some of these dynamics? And I think there's a lot of fun and awesome conversation to be had. But I think it also, to your point about some of that humility, is like recognizing that your experience might not be the experience for some folks. And like, when you work on something so personal, it's mm. important to keep that in mind. Is like you can have your personal experiences inform. Um, some of your views and you can you know test things out mentally if like this would jive for you or your family but ultimately your family is not the archetype for all families right that's amazing yeah I was actually thinking about it because I was having some DEI conversations recently as well and realizing like oh I also have biases <laughs> like there are a lot of things that I think that probably aren't true that I could look at and reevaluate so that's really um interesting interesting and exciting. Um, As we come to a close with this interview, I wanted to ask you, I asked this of every guest. So along the idea of fuck saving face and, you know, just becoming more empowered when it comes to mental, emotional, especially for you, physical health. um, What's something that you would really encourage someone to think about differently? I mean, we kind of just like touched upon it right now, but even in your lived experience, is there something that you would just like remove shame and stigma and taboo around? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely still work in progress for me personally, but as I kind of alluded to with our fundraising process, you know, I would say like, fuck the external validation. Mm. I think I've been very programmed to think about the comparisons and the external validations, even if something I internally fundamentally really am passionate about. And I think for me, this idea of like, if you believe it, because you have this unique point of view or this vantage point that other people might not be able to comprehend, like try it, like, you know, fuck what other people say. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's something that I had to learn while (laughs) fundraising and now while going on this journey. And like, you know, we talk to health insurance companies all the time. We talk to doctors and sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. And it's like learning about, you know, how I move forward from those people who don't get it. And like, what do I take from those conversations as learning? And what do I leave behind as I can't change someone's mind about something that we'll never agree upon. That's been something that for me has been, you know, something I'm working on, but something that's important. That's amazing. What a phenomenal response. (laughs) So for (laughs) if people want to continue to follow along your journey and, you know, um, potentially start to utilize the service for themselves and their families, where can they find you? Yeah, we're at lingohealth.io. There's a place on the website right at the top for folks to join our wait list to get all the updates. And you can follow us on all the kind of typical social handles. Um, We're at lingohealth. um, And then, you know, definitely look forward to keeping the community updated as we continue to grow. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We have a couple more left this season. And I wanted to just take a moment first and foremost to thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for your feedback. And to also say that I 
stopped the fuck saving face website, which as a marketer is gasp, shocking. Why would you do that? What about SEO? So I really want to make some pivots in my professional career in, you know, how we're growing wild hearted words, which is my branding and content marketing agency with what I'm doing personally. And I'm looking to streamline. So that's one of the things. The other thing is that, you know, I've been very interested in web three in moving forward with new innovative ways to connect with my audience and to connect with just people who are doing the kind of work that I want to be around, that I want to be inspired by, that I want to put forth in the world. And so in this moment of just kind of refining and streamlining, I've gotten rid of the website, but I have not gotten rid of the email address. So if you want to stay in touch, email me hello at fucksavingface.com. That's fuck without the U. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear if you've been listening to these episodes. I read each and every email and it's very helpful for me to know you know, how this podcast is of service, where we can grow it into, what it's going to be evolving into. One of the ideas that I had actually thought was, obviously it's going to have to have a different name because it has a curse word in it, but kind of like a secondary evolution of the podcast, which would be these cultural storytelling for younger audiences. So for my daughter, for example, you know, I've thought a lot about how much I love Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, how much, how many podcasts she and I listen to, especially with the long road trips that we've taken, and how much I would love to kind of put someone who looks like her or someone who looks like us, you know, anyone listening to this podcast at the forefront of the narrative so that it would kind of be like Magic Treehouse, but with versions where all of the characters are characters of color, you know, um, telling all these stories that I personally would like to know about my country of origin and my family's country of origin. These remarkable people who have done such great things that I don't know anything about because they're not the stories that I'm used to hearing living in America. And my friend recently introduced me to a show on HBO Max called Miss S, and it's um, reminiscent of the number one ladies detective agency, which I'd also loved as a show. Um, And it's about a Shanghainese female detective kind of in the 40s. And so you get to see the beautiful aesthetic, their costuming, all of those kinds of things. You get to see a modern woman, a woman, you know, being in power, stepping into her power, even though the society around her thinks it's like shocking. And also, uh, it gives me an opportunity to practice my Mandarin. So even though I have to have the subtitles on, it's a great show. So with all of that said, I hope you will email me and share me, share with me your feedback. It means a lot. It helps to, you know, kind of keep me motivated as we close season three and, figure out what we're going to be doing for season four. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will be in your earbuds or on your speakers soon. Want to support this podcast? You can do so in crypto. If you'd like to send your dollars, aka fiat currency, to me via the Cash App, which uses a super fast lightning network, I can convert it into Bitcoin. You can find me on the Cash App by typing in dollar sign Judy Tsui. That's T-S-U-E-I. More ways you can support the podcast are by sharing this with your friends, family, anybody you think might enjoy this. And remember to go get your copy of The Little Book of Tibetan Rites and Rituals at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Audible, or wherever you like to get your books. Make your story beautiful today.